0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to economist Jason Dion, Mitigation Research Director for the Canadian Climate Institute and lead author on a new report, The Big Switch, Making Canada's Electricity System Bigger, Cleaner, and Smarter. So welcome to the interview, Jason thanks for having me now i don't think that canadians understand the urgency of canada building out and modernizing its electricity system i uh, we report on what's you know the electricity system developments in the us in particular but also in europe and asia and those countries seem to get the fact that the transition off fossil fuels which is accelerating uh driven by technologies and capital and government policies. But electricity then becomes, we're essentially electrifying the economy and electricity becomes the foundation for the 21st century Canadian economy. And if you don't do a good job of it, then that will have an impact on our jobs, on our prosperity, on tax base, all sorts of things. And we're just not having that conversation was part of the reason for, uh, writing this report to raise consciousness, advance the the national conversation around this topic.
1: Yeah, totally, and and beyond that, to sort of start getting specific about what it means. But just at at the highest level, I mean, I certainly want to agree with you, and that's what our report says: is this big switch from fossil fuels to electricity. It's really what's going to underpin our our progress on dealing with climate change, but also our, our future prosperity. This is the energy system of the future. And I think when people want to understand, you know, what does it mean to deal with climate change, to get serious about climate change? Most of the answer is using a lot more electricity, using electricity to get ourselves around to move goods. So, you know, electric vehicles and transport, using more and more electricity to heat our homes, using heat pumps. This is really where a lot of this needs to go. And we've done a big report on what it means for electricity systems and specifically making them bigger, cleaner, and smarter.
0: Yeah. And one of the advantages we've had in Canada, of course, is with a lot of hydropower and uh, some nuclear power, particularly in Ontario. So our, our system, our electricity systems are already delivering clean electricity uh, about 80% uh, at this point. Um, there are, our costs are quite reasonable. I live in British Columbia, where there's a lot of hydropower, and I think I pay about $0.09 cents a kilowatt hour. That's very, very low. And other jurisdictions like Manitoba, hydro, Manitoba and Quebec are down around $0.07. Cents. And, we, and I think that's contributed to some of the complacency, both in policymakers and the general public.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, we, we like to complain about electricity in, in Canada. I live in Ontario, where it's a bit of a third rail in, in the politics here often, but I think we also need to appreciate that our electricity is well managed and affordable by most international standards, and we have this advantage of it being mostly non-emitting. So that strong base of hydropower plus some nuclear means we are, as you say, 80% non-emitting. Now, in some provinces, that, that number is lower, and there's a, a tougher hill to climb there on getting cleaner. But just to sort of connect that to that bigger picture is when it means sort of getting our electricity systems to step up and help us deal with climate change we have this huge head start on that cleaner dimension but we're also going to have to start making some steps on those other two of getting smarter and by that we mean more flexible getting systems that can respond to fluctuations in supply fluctuations in demand which matter a lot when you have more and more variable and intermittent sources like wind and solar but also getting bigger. And I think that's the part that really needs to be more top of mind for people. If we wanna do this, if we wanna use this much more electricity, the research shows we're gonna need 1.6 to 2.1 times as much electricity by 2050 as we have today. So bigger systems, more demand, but the systems themselves are gonna to have to grow even more, two to three times as big as they are today to support that demand. So that is a challenge that I think, you know. cleaner can be sort of obvious, good thing we have a head start there, smarter we sometimes get into and talk about, bigger just often isn't on the radar yet, and we think it should
0: be. I, I would agree. I've interviewed uh, uh, Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economic modeler about this issue. And, and he says that uh, within the modeling community, it's generally uh, as a rule of thumb, uh, developed economies like Canada will require two to three times as much electricity by 2050. Uh, developing economies will need three to five times as much electricity by 2050. And I often get into arguments. We see, particularly, you know, plugged in folks who are plugged into the climate change discussion argue that, no, 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 that's way too high because uh, energy efficiency measures. Will lower that quite substantially. It might only be one and a half times, for instance. But you, you, uh, hue closer to Chris's take on things. And you, and, and even though you recognize that, that energy efficiency will play a role,
1: so both sides are right in a funny way, but they're it's because they're talking about different things sometimes. How much more electricity are we going to need in terms of what we consume? Right. Well, that only has to grow. I say only by 1.6 to 2.1 times so that's a lot more electricity than we're using today but it's not double or triple what has to grow even more though is the systems the capacity of systems has to grow by our research shows 2.2 to 3.4 times and think of capacity as sort of the maximum that the system could be producing at any one time now because the future system involves so much more wind and solar because they're just so cheap even though they don't produce all the time we need a bigger system to, you know, two to three times larger to produce that 1.6 to 2.1 times more, more electricity in terms of generation. The, the distinction is generation versus capacity, different numbers. But yeah, both are a growth story. So bigger is true no matter which metric you're using.
0: Agreed. And I want to take the, uh, to illustrate how difficult this is to wrap our heads around. I want to use the example of British Columbia, where I live and it, it's it's uh, powered Uh, almost entirely 97% of electricity comes from hydro dams, I think there are 32 of them if I remember correctly, and uh, 16,332 megawatts of generating capacity. So 32 dams, 16,000 roughly megawatts of generating capacity. If you were to double the size of that capacity, could you build another 32 dams in British Columbia, you could not, uh, there's a the Site C dam, a very controversial Site C dam, is being built now. It's 1100 megawatts of generating capacity, and BC Hydro says that that will be the last dam it ever, it ever builds. So the question then becomes where is that power going to come from?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a big question, and, and BC is a useful example here because let's, let's use it as a way of sort of splitting the, the challenges that exist for different provinces. BC like quebec like manitoba like newfoundland benefits from having a ton of hydroelectric resources so you know almost entirely clean and non-emitting already and these resources are really powerful ways of balancing the intermittency of wind and solar because you can turn them on when wind and solar aren't producing so a pretty you know straightforward pathway to net zero but what is going to fill that gap in demand what's going to become part of bigger Well, you know, as you say, it could be more hydro dams, but there's a lot of hurdles associated with that in Canada. It's not easy to get those projects through. Not to say we'll never see more, but a big part of what has to fill those gaps is wind and solar. This is such a cheap source of electricity and it's going to play a huge role all across the country. Every province, regardless of what system they have now, should be building more wind and solar because it's just so cheap and cost-effective. But if you're in a province like BC, getting smarter, you know, making your system more flexible to respond to fluctuations in supply and demand. Problem solved. Hydro can do that. If you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have those resources, you need to be looking at other things like grid solutions. So connecting to regions that have that hydro storage in the form of batteries, but also demand side solutions, making demand more flexible, deferring EV charging until off peak. All these things fit under this basket of flexibility solutions, that are going to matter a lot, but it's sort of a a more complex exercise if you didn't don't have the luck of having hydroelectric resources like BC does.
0: Yeah, that's a so let's talk about the the second part of your uh, th- uh, three big baskets here, uh, the smarter uh, grid. And I, you know, I look at the way uh, the Americans are debating this issue, uh, and it's amazing. Uh, so. Uh, A couple months ago, I was on a a panel with uh, Dwayne Hiley, who is the CEO of the Tri-State Power and Generation Association. It's it's, uh, 42 uh, electricity co-ops in uh, four states, uh, New Mexico, Wyoming, Colorado, and I forget the fourth one. But uh, they're already at uh, 35% uh, wind and solar. They're going to be at 50% by 2024. And seventy percent by 2030, and a lot of it is this flexibility in smart grids that they're they're building in. So they're they're part of a big market. So as uh, generation comes on, you know, solar and wind are are generating electricity somewhere else. They can trade for it, uh, and they'll, so they'll be buying and selling. Uh, they're looking in a big way at hydrogen for storage. Uh, and, and batteries, of course, and and, not, and we should mention not just lithium ion batteries, there are flow batteries and all sorts of other storage technologies that are coming on. They're looking at grid technologies like grid enhancing technologies. And, I, and it's another thing I don't think Canadians understand is how much technology is affecting the modernization of the grid the things you can do today with new technologies including ai and analytics and and data and so on is truly amazing and it's really transforming how we think of the grid and where are we at in that conversation
1: yeah and i mean so let's sort of start with people's sort of familiarity of this. And I think, you know, sometimes you'll hear that people sort of understand, oh, right, wind and solar have been falling in costs for a long time. They're cheap and they continue to fall. That's true. And that's an important first place to start. But where there's less awareness often is, well, you'll sort of hear this this counter argument of, yeah, but the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Of course, that is true. But what solutions do we have available to deal with that? Lots. The technology has come a long way on this front. So in part, it's just better managed system software that can actually manage the flows of power in ways that, that can adjust for these discrepancies. That's That's huge. Also, these demand side technologies, smart appliances in our homes that will be able increasingly to talk to the grid, talk to the utility, to be able to power on when it makes more sense to do so in ways that most people won't even notice. So these technologies are right on the cusp. But if you think of this basket of flexibility solutions, you also mentioned st- storage as one Another, though, and this is where we're kind of different from the U.S. in a good way, is hydropower. Hydropower can be turned on when these variable sources aren't producing. And the other thing it can do is when they are, you just don't draw on that hydro resource and you allow the reservoirs to fill. So you sort of it's a, a its own battery in a way. And we can sort of charge the battery when these wind and solar resources are producing and use this giant natural battery or semi-natural When they're not. And and this is a really, really important distinction between the U.S. and Canada. They don't have that benefit of those hydroelectric resources. We would benefit a lot in Canada from interconnecting with each other east-west. Every big hydro region is neighbor to one that will decarbonize with wind and solar. And right now they, they exist as islands. They're not very connected. That would be a really, really smart way to go about it. But the other thing we would highlight is even if you don't, There are other smart technologies out there that can provide the flexibility that you need. So, yeah, it's a big technology change story. And I think people need to understand that technologies are ready. They are economically feasible. In fact, the biggest remaining hurdles are more political and institutional. Our markets and institutions need to catch up to this new reality.
0: And since we're talking about the, the U.S. a little bit, uh, one of the things that they have that Canada doesn't is a much bigger reliance on markets. And back in the day when, uh, well, you know, nine out of the 10 provinces uh, uh, still have, well, eight out of the 10 provinces still are dominated by crown-owned, uh, crown-owned utilities. They don't really have markets. And Ontario sort of has a market-based system, but you know, overlaid with all sorts of other regulations and subsidies. It's only Alberta that really has a closer to an American style uh, electricity market, a wholesale market. And the, I don't know how many dozens of uh, experts I've talked about this over the last three or four years, but everyone agrees that, that the 20th century electricity grid Uh, could function very well like that, as as Canada's has. But the 21st century grid, which relies on far more wind and solar and intermittent sources and, you know, this complexity, markets become that much more important. And how do then do we integrate a more, how do we integrate markets into this system dominated by by monopolies uh, that don't want to trade East and West?
1: Right. So, I mean, a a first observation there would be that, you know, absolutely, yes, there is this very different model that exists across Alberta and sort of Ontario compared to the rest of the country. And it sort of presents this larger question of, well, do you need to take these steps to deregulate and privatize electricity in the way that's been done in Alberta and Ontario? And, you know, maybe that could create some advantages. It's also a huge and complicated exercise. So what, what I would say in response is... Vertically integrated public utilities, like we have in in many parts of Canada, can also present some advantages in that they, because they're often publicly owned, you have the ability as the government to direct them to pursue certain objectives. You don't have to design a market that can get to climate change objectives. You can simply direct the utility to do it, uh, and there are ways to empower them and enable them to do that. So you don't need to necessarily entirely rethink the market model, but is there a way to inject more private sector dynamism into these jurisdictions absolutely so you know you can still have a vertically integrated public utility that when it's time to procure new solar and wind instead of trying to build it itself recognizing their expertise is, is often more on, on hydro and, and management of systems why not go to the market so it's about designing procurement processes designing other ways of, of managing these resources once they're on the grid that can bring some of that market discipline, certainly there's smart ways to do that. So it does not require a total flip and rethink of the, the market and regulatory model. But is there a way to sort of to, to split the difference and, and bring in some market forces? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, let's talk about a couple of examples of that. So on the, on the uh, well-managed side, we have Quebec Hydro which is doing a, a, an amazing job of integrating uh, wind and uh, eventually, I think it plans to add some solar into its its hydro base. Uh, these projects seem to be, they're in partnership with uh, private companies, but they seem to be very well managed. They're well received within the public and government. And then you have BC Hydro again. And there, because you have history uh, back in the aughts here, uh, where the government went out to, uh, 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 these private uh, uh, generation companies, they let contracts. And they were highly political and they were, the government was accused of favoring its friends and, and giving contracts at very high rates, you know, an average of, uh, I think it was $100 a megawatt hour versus the 26 or something that BC Hydro could generate it with its, its own legacy dams. And, and you, it's, the well has almost been poisoned in BC for, for private generation because of that. It's very difficult now to talk about those, that, that sort of issue. And you see some version of this, these kinds of conversations, these politics across Canada.
1: Yeah, and, and long, long history there in BC, as you note, and I think it's, it's probably fair to observe that independent power producers have probably had the rug pulled out from them here. And I think that's, that's not beneficial for the creation of an industry like that in the province. So certainly that's not a, a model to follow. But I think, you know, and, and I live in Ontario where we have this, this um, you know example that gets held up of all of the excess costs around our feed-in tariff program here. Really, I think the larger lesson we can and should draw from all of these things is how to go about these things the smart way in the future, right? And there are ways to do it transparently using reverse auctions, et cetera, that sort of get the market in, in a way that is transparent and above board and drives costs down for the end user, for the public. And I, the, the larger observation I would make here, and, and so if we think of BC Hydro again and this this Site C, you know, many of the difficulties that we've had, or, or some of them anyway, in, in, associated with certain projects across the country, has been when governments have just sort of taken a, a path, chosen a path without necessarily a lot of input and consultation with their utilities, with their regulators. And our suggestion would be that we need to change the role or, or adapt the role of regulators, system operators, public utilities to play a larger role in figuring out what what the system should look like in the future. And I think there's a lot of expertise there. If their mandates were updated, if they were given the resources and the authorities they need to meet the priorities of the new century, recognizing they were kind of set up for the priorities of the last century, let's update them to this new context. And allow them, their expertise, the benefits of adjudicative process in the form of regulators, to deliver what is actually the more cost-effective approach without as much of a thumb on the scale from governments. I think that's the path forward here. And there's smart ways to do that that don't involve totally rethinking and starting from scratch what we have today.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to use the example again of BC, because on the one hand, the, the government of BC has brought in the, the, the clean BC climate policy, it's generally agreed that this is very good policy, and and it, and it, it, is, it leans heavily on electrification for it. And yet at the same time, when the government uh, began the process of working with BC hydro, to come up with a plan uh, to generate it, you know, to do the things, some of the things that you're talking about in your report, they kind of went at it in a, it, in a way, a dumb way, an, a 20th century way, because what they did, and, and I wanna make a point here. I've done some interviews, and, and viewers can, can Google, uh, can find them on our uh, YouTube channel with a fellow named Val Jensen, who's a former uh, Illinois uh, utility executive, now a consultant. And he made the point in an interview that utilities are wonderful gatekeepers. They, keep, they do a very good job of managing who gets into the conversation about electricity and who doesn't. And, and he said, that's the worst way to do planning. You, if It takes longer and it's messier, but public planning process that are transparent and have lots of input from experts and the public is really the, the way to go. And so we look at what BC did. What they did is convene a, you know, a a, a committee of experts, you know, maybe there were a dozen experts people like Professor Mark Jackard and Professor Blake Schaefer from the University of Calgary, and they did it all behind closed doors. And then it turns out that they when they came up with their plan, uh, their integrated resource plan. Um, they hadn't received enough direction from government. And now you've got this convoluted, the, you know, the plan is getting criticized and the government is, is, seems to be, you know, stuck in the, and hydro doesn't seem to be, it, it's not the smart kind of planning process that you just described, even though the government started out with very good intentions. And, and I think it's a case study in how not to do things in Canada.
1: Well, I actually agree it's a case study and we we treat it as exactly that in our report. So you'll find a full page box on it sort of saying like, well, what's happening here? How did we get here? And and the way I characterize it is in BC, you have a jurisdiction that is trying quite hard, right? Like you've got this 2030 plan you described, the the hydro utility has been directed by the government, yet you have an integrated resource plan submitted where the base scenario for planning effectively assumes failure on climate policy goals and and why would that be and you know, having talked to everybody on all sides there it's it's my view that my hypothesis that they in fact have submitted a plan like that not not to make too much out of it doesn't lock the future in stone they have a scenario where where we hit this these targets but it's not the central scenario and and the reason is by my estimation that that's what they feel they can get past the regulator the bc utilities commission so there's a disconnect there and so our view just to sort of now zoom out of well what's a model and a template that would make sense for any jurisdiction including BC where where they're trying hard but something's just not connecting and and that model to my mind is one where public institutions like regulators utility public utilities and system operators where they exist are directed to okay net zero is the plan the goal not just directed to hit the 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 goals of existing climate policies, right, which maybe only go as far as 2030 and don't give any trajectory beyond that to our long-term goals. You point them at the long-term goals, they internalize the existing policies, but that's also not enough, right, because then you have this gap between where we know we're headed and where we know we ultimately need to go. If you just give them an open-ended mandate to bridge that gap, you're effectively asking them to make policy. And here is where I'm sort of sympathetic with an idea that we, we can't, fully uh, depoliticize all energy planning right like some of these choices are inherently political if you put it to those bodies you are politicizing their decision making you're putting them in a position where they can't make defensible decisions and their decisions risk getting overturned in, in, through litigation and appeal so we need to look quite carefully at a new model and the new model I'd we suggest is one where provinces develop what we're calling comprehensive energy plans. These are non binding informational documents that provide some guardrails and vision on where governments see the energy system evolving, but that they then empower and, and direct their utilities and regulators, all these expert bodies, to deliver on that plan. So that's how you can sort of bridge the gap between this kind of political decision making and this adjudicative process decision making, recognizing that, that both have a role to play here, and that in fact we need these comprehensive energy plans to give regulators some guidance around the tough questions they can't answer single-handedly. Like, what is the plan for the future of the gas network? How much building retrofits and energy efficiency is envisioned? What does all that mean for the prospects of load growth? This sort of open-ended request that they do net zero would be helpful, but it would also be not enough, and it would be very incomplete on its own. So it's our view these additional steps need to be taken to really provide some trajectory of how we're going to get to those long-term goals. Because only going a decade out when we know we're talking about something several decades into the future. We need some sense of where we're going because if it's just a void, then it's, it's putting everyone in a difficult position.
0: Well, let's talk about two provinces that have taken the opposite approach to British Columbia and that would be Alberta and Ontario where the government's there, the UCP government of Jason Kenney in Alberta and the uh, PC government of, of uh, Doug Ford in Ontario, uh, they don't have climate plans. And they don't have net zero uh, plans and objectives. They don't even have, they don't have an energy plans. And so in Alberta, the uh, the market based system there kind of grows willy nilly depending on the demands of the market, and which is actually now for wind and solar very strong because of corporate per, uh, power purchase agreements. And so that's a good thing. Uh, but in Ontario, they're taking an, they're retiring one nuclear plant and taking two offline for refurbishment. And the government plan, you know, there really is no plan uh, to rep- uh, replace that with wind and solar. They're going to ramp up their natural gas power plants. And the estimate is that by 2030, 600% more emissions could be the result uh, of that. Uh, and so you have, you have them actually working against the net zero scenario or a strategy in that, in that particular case. And that, sh- again, shows the difficulties of uh, here now we have politics that aren't aligned with net zero that aren't clean plans. And that has a whole different set of politics and issues that come along with it.
1: Yeah. And and so maybe I'll answer by almost sort of flipping it on its head that, that maybe (laughs) that they're not, um, they're not as difficult of, of a couple of cases as you might think, because on the one hand, we can also point to some successes in each and one would be the design of carbon pricing in Alberta that provides better incentives for emissions reductions and the ontake of wind and solar than the federal approach does. So it's actually like a, a better way of pricing carbon. I think we can draw some inspiration from that in how the federal policy is applied. In Ontario, you've also got this situation where the independent electricity system operator produced a study of, of well, what would it mean to get off of gas by 2030? And that they didn't, you know, it was. Took a certain uh, set of scenarios and pathways, and sort of said, "Well, it's it's not that feasible." You know, there were other pathways that I, others, and myself, and others thought maybe should be included. Regardless, though, the the reaction was interesting, where the provincial government then directed them to do an additional follow up study that said, "Well, what would it mean to get off of gas on these timelines with these broader pathways?" So that's that's an interesting and useful follow up question. I think it both examples illustrate that electricity is a sector where market forces are already pushing things in in a a clean and non-emitting direction, where federal policy exists as a backstop, both with carbon pricing and the proposed clean electricity standard, and where due to uh, pressure from domestic industry, from companies that operate there, and from citizens, there is a genuine openness to, to getting electricity right. And it's part of the reason, to my mind, that electricity can be a more productive conversation in energy and climate change because this is about how we're going to build the energy, the clean and non-emitting system we need. It's sort of a different conversation than how we get off of fossil fuels. Of course, that's all embedded in it. But I think even with Alberta and Ontario, you're seeing encouraging steps. You know, do we want more? Do we need to go further? Absolutely. But I think it, it, you can draw sort of optimism and optimistic notes from those, even in the, if you want to sort of point to them as contexts where you have a very reluctant provincial government around net zero goals.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, what you call electric federalism and uh, the, so federal policies. Uh, can you give us a kind of an overview of your, of your pers- uh, what uh, electric federal- federalism means?
1: Yeah, so, so by that, what we're describing is that all levels of government have a role to play here in electricity. And specifically, the federal government can enact climate policies to drive the needed changes. It can play a convening and supporting role for certain sort of common challenges for grid integration. But provinces not only have uh, jurisdiction over climate change, shared jurisdiction with the federal government, it's it's really their electricity systems. They, They manage those systems. So it's critical that they act. So they can do things like directing public institutions, guiding their work with comprehensive energy plans, and implementing their own climate policies. And what we observe here at the highest level is that this is all going to work a lot better if both orders of government work in a coordinated way. And that doesn't mean a sort of kumbaya scenario where everybody's sort of agreeing on everything, (laughs) not at all. In fact, what it means is that they are just recognizing that each have a constructive role to play. They are sticking to the sort of the bounds of of what their authorities are and enabling and supporting each other where it makes sense to. And I think that we can imagine a role for the federal government there, certainly.
0: Well, one of the challenges that you note in the study is that federal climate policy in the electricity sector is not currently aligned with net zero goals. And I I was actually a little surprised by that. I I thought that it was better aligned.
1: So the reason that we say that is... is largely due to this current treatment of electricity under the federal carbon price. And the way that they've elected to do that, and I'll try not to go down a bit of a rabbit hole here, is with output-based pricing. So that's a special approach to carbon pricing, where you reduce the average cost that that the emitter pays, but in a way that preserves the marginal signal. And, you know, (laughs) jargon aside, what that means is you're trying to give them an incentive to get cleaner by cleaning up generation rather than producing less. And this is an approach you would take in a sector that is emissions intensive and trade exposed. And that's the the other parts of the economy where this is applied. It's where they're in a globally competitive marketplace and where just putting really hard climate policy on them would risk putting them out of business only for the same production to pop up in another jurisdiction with less stringent climate policy. Now we apply this treatment in electricity even though it doesn't quite fit the bill as a sector that is quote unquote emissions intensive and trade exposed. It's it's actually not so much of either of those things in Canada. But part of the reason we've done that reading between the lines is to reduce the price impact for consumers, right? Because we want to encourage electrification. We don't want high electricity prices and also to avoid large interprovincial financial flows. Because if you took a more traditional trading approach and it's it's there's a specific quirk in the way output based pricing is is applied in electricity if you apply it the regular way you might get large transfers from jurisdictions that don't have hydro to jurisdictions that do. so anyway all that being said there is a simpler approach where you just price carbon full on without this output based pricing treatment but in order to reduce that price impact you recycle the revenues directly to provincial rate payers. And so that's what we've proposed in this work that would strengthen the incentives from climate policy in the electricity sector. And you can backstop it with a clean electricity standard that would make sure that the sector is net zero by 2035. And we have some ideas on how it could do that in a way that's flexible and cost-effective and works in tandem with the carbon price to deliver sort of cost-effective reductions overall. So important that we sort of move on past this initial model that we've had to carbon pricing and climate policy and electricity sector if we're gonna go where we need to go.
0: Well, Jason, another challenge that you've noted in the study is that um, some of the, uh, creating a resilient electricity system aligned with net zero could put upward pressure on electricity rates. And it can do that in a couple of ways, which are different depending on which province you're in. So in in provinces like British Columbia and Quebec, uh, their governments, they promise even during election campaigns that they will keep rates low. And so there's a lot of political pressure to not raise particularly residential rates to annoy voters. And then on the other hand, you've got uh, situations in Alberta and Ontario. And I think of Alberta, you know, in the last couple of years, rates, not for the cost of the power, the electricity, but uh, transmission and distribution fees have gone up uh, quite a lot and are you know in some cases you know doubling uh, consumers' uh, bills and then of course now you get the pushback for any change to the system because they think it's you know it's going to cost them more and and on top of an already onerous bill how how in the world do we deal with that?
1: Yeah, so this is something we've taken a close look at in this work. It's one of the four core challenges that our report focuses on is this potential upward pressure on rates and one thing we've done as part of this is actually forecast and project what rates could look like across provinces as we make these investments. And I think that's not something that's been done till now and what it shows is that certainly there is the potential for upward pressure on rates especially in those provinces that not only need to get bigger which has to happen everywhere but cleaner and smarter where they don't have the benefit of hydroelectric resources, which have already made costs cheaper. So challenges exist on this rates front and they differ across provinces. And and what we prescribe there at, at the highest level is that we do more public investment in electricity systems. Historically, we have paid for all of these costs out of rates. We have the rate payers, people who pay bills are the ones that pay for those investments. But if we think of other types of infrastructure, like like transportation infrastructure, transit, roads, highways, governments routinely play a role in investing in these. And we think there's a case for doing the same in the electricity sector because you don't want rates to rise for a number of reasons. It exacerbates energy poverty. It undermines competitiveness. It undermines the incentives people have to electrify, which is what we want to deal with climate change. And it also creates really difficult political challenges and could undermine support for climate action. So there's lots of reasons we don't want rates to rise. And by making public investments in electricity systems, we can defray this, these pressures on rates. And we've got ideas on ways to do that that don't create distortions to incentives, that don't create the problems that you might worry about in other sectors if you were subsidizing some of them getting overbuilt. In fact, these are highly regulated sectors that have a public interest regulator in place across every province to make sure that the systems get built in a way that makes sense for its users and ratepayers. So let's leverage that advantage, do this public investment to our view and and reduce that potential pressure on rates. And I'll, I'll just finally add there that we think there's a really powerful role here for the federal government, that on the one hand, those investments could recognize that, well, not every province has the same ability to pay here. They also don't face the same cost. Some jurisdictions by luck of geography have more hydropower and an easier road ahead of them. So federal support on this front could provide an equalizing function. We've also got some ideas on strings that could be attached that very high level, uh, provincial policy actions like mandating regulators, like developing their own energy plans, which would be developed by them. That if provinces are willing to take these steps, that provinces and federal government could sign negotiated agreements, that would flow these funds and support provincial transitions in ways that delivered a cost-effective net zero energy system with prudent oversight from that province's own regulator. So we think there is a role here where these governments can work together to defray those pressure on rates and sort of advance and enable and accelerate this larger transition. Well,
0: one of the things that you, uh, you've got um, five recommendations here. And one of them is that uh, the federal government should strengthen climate policies in the electricity sector. So we've talked a little bit about that. And another is that provincial and territorial governments should flex their policy muscles to drive transformation of their electricity systems. We've talked a little bit about that. How do we get all of this coordinated? Now, I know the federal government has, is uh, creating a pan-Canadian grid council, which it hopes will do some of this work. Is that enough for the heavy lifting around these issues?
1: So I, I think it depends, well, it, first answer, no, but it also depends in part what the focus and, and mandate of that grid council will be. And we've got some recommendations in our report that we think bigger in this context than just the importance of coordination and integration. So connecting systems. Yes, that matters an awful lot. And that grid council should focus on that work. It should also focus to our mind on the shared challenges that provinces and territories are going to encounter. As they go forward here because they're all going to deal with many of the same issues so experimentation and sharing best practices on rate design on things like working with independent power producers the whole suite of challenges that they're going to work on they should be working on these together or sharing notes at least in this grid council not in a way that requires them to do anything specific but only that that becomes a vehicle to work on shared challenges so that sort of convening role that experience sharing can really help right but Is it enough? No, our answer would be that what could really help here is that accelerant I was describing previously of having these negotiated agreements where federal funds are provided to provinces and to support their transitions in exchange for their taking a limited number of high level policy actions. This can be the glue that ties together a lot of those actions and recommendations we had in our report, because while there certainly is a path forward here where each level of government sticks to their own jurisdiction, you know, does things in a unilateral, uh, you know, uncoordinated way that that's an option, but these changes might be slow to materialize in some places. So a glue and accelerant that can take the form of these federal provincial negotiated agreements could really help. And my last point here would be that this is also precedent for it, right? So think of healthcare funding, think of federal, those federal provincial childcare agreements that were signed recently, where you have federal funds supporting provincially managed systems in exchange for certain high level principles being adhered to. This can amount amount to a relatively non-prescriptive role for the federal government in an area of provincial jurisdiction, in fact, less prescriptive than they might have to take otherwise, because once the provinces agree to this condition, these conditions, A, it would sort of let them manage the systems in the way they saw fit, but B, give everyone involved confidence that we were headed in the same direction here, which is net zero, but everyone's going to get there on their own terms. So to our mind, it's, it's one of these core ideas in electric federalism.
0: Now, I want to wrap up our conversation today with uh, a, a discussion of the pace of change here, because, you know, Canada, and I think Canadians are lulled into a false sense of security here. Canada has a reputation for talking big and not doing much. And in fact, that's one of the criticisms of the federal policies is that you know, great policy implementation, eh, you know, not, not so much. But here's the, here, there are changes coming in two key sectors of the economy uh, and that would be transportation and industry. We know that the, the global auto transportation sector led by the light duty automakers, you know, like the Fords and GMs and so on, are investing hundreds of billions of dollars in switching to electric. And the demand for electric vehicles is far greater than anybody imagined even a couple of years ago. So there's a very good chance that the transportation sector is going to electrify and then with the increased load on electricity systems that that will mean in, in a matter of years, not decades, not a decade or two, but in you know this decade. It's going to be a big issue for utilities. And secondly, it used to be thought that industry was going to be one of those hard to decarbonize sectors, you know, steel making and cement making uh, production, all of that sort of thing. And yet we see, you know, industry like the steel plant in Hamilton that uh, is switching over to uh, electricity, plasma arc. Uh, into those two new technologies. And then again, this is where the reality on the ground is moving much faster than expectations. And so I guess to wrap this, my thought up is there's a very good chance the market is going to increase the load for utilities far faster than we've been anticipating. This This may not be policy driven. It may be market driven to a large extent. And What do we do then if we get caught unawares?
1: Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right that things are already tracking this way, right? So electric vehicles, uptake is growing. There's some projections that they will be cost competitive with internal combustion engine vehicles in the next five years. And they're already cheaper over their life cycle, right? When you account for their lower operating costs their lower maintenance costs. So I think everybody knows this is coming, right? And you're right that in industry, a lot of the solutions are electric, not, not all of them. Some parts will remain hard to electrify, but we are going to see more demand for electricity from industry, regardless of policy, I think, or, or it's supported by policy. What I would say at the same time, though, is that load growth that's coming on its own should be backstopped by policy. We, we're going to need policy to drive and accelerate these changes to make them happen on the pace we need to to deal with climate change and to drive them in other parts that might be slower to come otherwise, like building heat. So let's let's answer your larger question in two parts. First is the sort of market force driven increases in load. We need to have a very clear eye on that because the the sort of worst case, or not not worst, a worst case scenario here is where we fail to build the systems that are going to be able to keep up with that demand. And they strain under the pressure. Maybe we get reliability problems. Maybe we get price elevations that's not good for anybody, right? Because that's going to undermine and slow down the transition. People will be less likely to make a switch to electric vehicles if that's the case. So we don't want to fail to prepare here, but we also want to accelerate what's likely to happen through market forces alone. We want policy and we're bringing in policy at the provincial level, at the federal level, that's going to continue to drive these changes. So for the same reasons, electricity systems that are slow or late to catch up to that demand are going to create a lot of problems for us. So it's why we've really underlined bigger, cleaner, smarter. And the other thing we say often when we talk about that is faster. That means we're going to have to build things and get moving much more quickly than we have historically. Our research shows that we're talking about a pace of building that's three to six times faster than we've done in the last decade, kind of going forward in the decades to come. So we need to sort of wrap our heads around how we're going to do that. I think regular people need to get used to the idea that like, Yeah, you might see a transmission tower. You might see wind turbines. This is the energy we're going to have to build to get serious about climate change. The other thing we'd add there, though, is that this is not just all for for global climate change's sake. It unlocks real benefits. So, you know, clean air, quieter cities, you know, those benefits, but also costs, right? We have a clear finding in our work that an electric energy future is actually cheaper, but it just requires the investments to unlock it. So it's not a cakewalk. It's not a slam dunk. We need to act on policy to drive uptake of, of electric energy and uses, but also policy to make sure that our systems are ready for that. And that's been the focus of this work.
0: Your last uh, answer uh, caused me to think of, a, of an issue that came up. that uh, was a couple of years ago. There were the Alberta electricity system operator issued a report. Actually, I think it might've been last year and about the sort of state of the grid. And one of the, Uh, drivers of that study and they went, uh, you know, did extensive consultations with industry and utilities and, you know, other stakeholders. And and you see this uh, process playing out in the U.S. in a big way, and that is distributed energy. And what the uh, utilities in Alberta are really worried about, they don't talk about it publicly, but it became through loud and clear in this report, is that as this, uh, as electrification speeds up, big industries and big commercial users are looking at self-generating they'll take themselves either off the grid or they'll use grid just as the backup and they'll put in their own solar panels and their own battery storage and all of that Uh, and that has cost implications for uh, smaller consumers you know like residential and, and small business because you take those big users off the system and so, uh, where do you see distributed energy and, and self-generation fitting into into the big switch?
1: Yeah, so it's it's huge, and it's I, I think it's hard to say with precision how big or what kind of a role it will play for for two reasons. One is. There's so many different technologies and possibilities interplaying here that I think there's genuine uncertainty about how big and what kind of a role it'll play. The other one is that the modeling studies on this don't tend to do a great job of representing those technologies or, or distribution systems in general. So it's, it's hard to have insights on, on what it could do, even if we even if we have, uh, even if the technology landscape were simpler, the modeling hasn't quite caught up yet. But... I think what we can say is absolutely, this is kind of like an unstoppable force, more and more of these energy, uh, like sol- like local solar, uh, you know, home scale batteries, and the equivalent at the industrial level, we're going to see more and more of that. The, the bigger question, what, what utilities and regulators are really wrestling with and are going to have to continue to wrestle with in this context is, how do you sort of enable that? And, and, and welcome it and at the same time, keep it fair in terms of what the cost for everybody that stays on the system, because there is a, you know, it's really in jurisdictions where the pricing's kind of screwed up that you get outcomes that, that aren't really desirable here. And so let's, let's look at California, and this is the case in other jurisdictions in Canada too, where the way you pay for electricity is basically based on how much you consume right? So I contribute to the maintenance of the grid based on my volume of consumption. So, okay, so I go uh, install a solar panel. I cut my demand by whatever, say 30%. Well, now my bill fell by 30%. In fact, though, I still benefit from my access to the grid and much more than 30% of my bill was going towards that, right? So you're no longer, so you benefit from still being connected to the grid. It's there when you need it but now I'm making less of a contribution to its maintenance than I am my neighbor that doesn't have a solar panel. That's not fair and that's not a desirable system. So we need to come up with ways of pricing grid access that allow for cost recovery and recognize that if you're going, you know, you want to fully disconnect from the grid, that's your business. You know, but if you want to remain connected, you're going to have to contribute to its maintenance if you want to enjoy its benefits. And so that's that's the highest level answer. This gets really complicated in terms of rate design and the incentives that you're creating. But what we want is a coherent outcome across possible technology options. And those options are much more complicated than they used to be. And there's about there's services involved here, like flexibility as a grid service that our, our systems are not set up to value and prioritize. So this is about market design, procurement processes, rate design, that ideally allow for coherent outcomes across possible options to emerge. Not putting our thumb on the scale on technologies, but letting them sort of un, you know compete and flourish. And really that's gonna be the big challenge.
0: Well, before I let you go, I, one, I promise this is the final question. Uh, you're talking to stakeholders, including governments and utilities, across the country are are you comfortable that we're having the conversation behind closed doors with regulators and utilities and policymakers and uh out in public in the in the broader you know public discourse about this issue
1: so i i think that there increasingly you're seeing regulators and utilities do a better job of outreach to the public of bringing the public into these sorts of processes i mean the, the truth is regulatory proceedings are not exactly going to get the average citizens you know blood racing and and you know really we shouldn't all have to be so active in those but there should be an opportunity to participate there you know utilities are doing a better job of this on consultation this, this is going to remain a challenge but what i would also say at the highest level is that what we've sort of mapped out here is a future where really you let you public utilities, regulators, system operators kind of be concerned with the operationalization of our ambitions and plans. How are we going to go about this exactly? Those comprehensive energy plans on the part of governments are really vital guidance documents for the decisions that they'll take. And I think that's one of the ideal places for citizens and other groups to really get engaged in these debates because we can't entirely just leave it to these kind of expert bodies to do for us there are inherently political choices and trade-offs to be made here and so yeah let's let's have a government articulate its vision and in doing that you know ideally it's done through a consultative transparent process but however in consultative and transparent that is they'll be held accountable for it by voters right and there will be the opportunity to bring in governments with different visions for the electricity and energy system so really we want a good healthy public debate on these topics. Do we need it to, to you know the finest level of detail in these system plans? Probably not, but we do want them engaged on what the high level plan is and what the options are. And, and these comprehensive energy plans are, are ideally suited to do just that.
0: Very interesting answer, Jason. Thank you very much for this. I think anybody who uh, wants to understand the where we're at and where we need to go, uh, this conversation is a good place to start. Thank you very much for this.
1: Thank you.